Please take your copy of God's Word with me. Let's turn together to the book of Esther this evening. Let's turn together to the book of Esther in chapter 8. I can't think of anything sweeter than spending not only the Lord's Day with you, the church, but here on a Sunday evening just singing and directing our focus to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Just thinking about the future realities of glory, thinking about the significance and meaning of the Lord's table, of all that heaven means and will mean as we fellowship together with the saints around the, the Lamb and the throne. What a joy it is. And as we gather together each Lord's Day, really what it is is a foretaste of heaven. And uh, may we never grow um, to where we're just used to all this. May the Lord keep us soft. May the Lord keep us pliable to where we enjoy the pleasures of the table, fellowship. And we certainly have done that uh, this, this day. Turning to Esther chapter 8, we now direct our attention to tonight's message as we continue on the Sunday evening uh, sermon series to the book of Esther. We now come to the remarkable chapter of Esther chapter 8. Let's find our place in God's Word and we'll begin reading there in verse 1. And then for the next few moments we'll walk through this chapter and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Esther chapter 8, on that day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, and which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king. She fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamath the Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all of the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? The king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews." You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month which is the month of Savan on the 23rd day and it is written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, to the satraps, and the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every, in, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with a king's signet ring. And sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, 
bread from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all the people, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Now the couriers who rode on the royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every providence and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's take just a moment to pray before we look at this chapter. Father in heaven, in thought, word, and deed, we have failed you, our King. How deeply we need a Savior. We thank you for Christ our Lord, who while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, as we reflect upon Esther chapter 8 and as we prepare our hearts and our minds for reflecting and observing, participating in the Lord's table, as we come to your word, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, please give us. What we are not, would you make us into the image of your Son? It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. As we come to Esther chapter 8, we find a chapter that is full of divine reversals. Things that were once put in place have now changed. The tension of the book up until this point is now released in some ways. Mysteries that were present are becoming resolved. It's now time for the king to make his decisions. And last time together we saw that the king dramatically, once the revelation was given, gave the orders for Haman to be dealt with. Suddenly and on the spot, Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, the man that he hated. Here in Esther chapter 8, we find that Mordecai is promoted, Esther vindicated, and ultimately by the end of the chapter we will see, as we just read, that the Jews were spared. Now as we come to this passage, really you could summarize Esther chapter 8 as a passage or chapter of divine reversals. At the beginning of the chapter, the Jews find themselves under a death sentence, and by the end of the chapter, we find the Jews celebrating over life restored to them again. As we walk through the text, I'll just mention the headings as we come to them. Number one, in verse one, I want us to notice the reward. Notice there with me, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told how he was related to her. 
So the king took off his signet ring and handed it over, that the, king that, the ring that Haman had had, and handed it over to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. This very day, at the end of chapter 7, now the beginning of chapter 8, the day that Haman died, we see the king obtains the property of Haman. In fact, in ancient times, anyone who forfeited his life in a, a rendered judgment or some type of crime or civil rendering, their property would immediately be forfeited, their estate would be given over to the kingdom, the king, in his possession. This is normal happenstance, and this happened in the case of, of Haman. Immediately, it's as, as if the king senses Esther's trauma, Esther's stress, She's fresh on his mind here, and as he knows the process, he simply, it's as if he hands it all over to Esther as if this is going to help her heart. Esther, who's the queen, Esther, who has everything she needs in the palace, at times, at least the way I'm reading the text, as if this king is just a bozo, as if this, this is going to help her heart. He, he's not fully understanding, but here, here's an extra house that you don't need, Esther, Here's possessions, and now let's not minimize and uh, um, understate the, all that, that, um, that Haman had. He was the prime minister. He was a wealthy man, and we get all of that. But it's as if, as he hands this over to Esther and her possession, as if this is supposed to pacify her in, in some way. In fact, in chapter 7, Esther had revealed her ethnicity to the king, and now she's standing before him at the beginning of chapter 8, and she now is pleased to present Mordecai to the king as not just his servant, not just as a faithful servant saving the king's life and serving in the king's administration. No, we know the rest of the story, but just look at this from the perspective of King Xerxes. Wait, his wife and one of the men who's responsible for saving his life, who he has grown fond of, wait, y'all are related? What is going on here? This is like story or mystery after mystery being revealed. In fact, Esther is a, is a book of mysteries. It's laced with mysteries. In fact, much of the plot, one commentator says, advances based on what people don't know. Haman doesn't know that Esther is related to Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't know that the gallows are for him. Haman doesn't know why he was invited to the feast. And the king doesn't know Haman's rivalry with Mordecai. And the king certainly doesn't know up until this point that Mordecai and Esther are connected in, in any way. In the last chapter, we don't even know as the reader why Esther delays her request one day. And yet we find out in God's providence and his providential dealings and workings that all of this works out for the greater glory of God. His providential leading in her decision-making exposes others' secrets. And the timing is, is absolutely perfect. Just imagine the perspective of Xerxes revealing and finding out all of this in a matter of minutes and moments in a short period of time. Well, obviously, the king takes it all with relative ease, as he already has a heart that is favorably bent towards Mordecai. In fact, he advances him yet again. And I would just admit, or conjure in my thinking as I mentally went, did the work through it, that this had to be intriguing to King Xerxes. His wife and Mordecai being related, being connected, but he had such a fondness for Mordecai that now we now see that the responsibility is now handed to Mordecai. In fact, in our texture, we see that the king takes the signet ring that he had handed to Haman, that signet ring that represents his authority, 
the signet ring that represents the king's edicts and orders. Anything done with this ring is it's stamped and wax seal upon uh, orders uh, will be taken into effect as if the king himself has ordered it and done it. And he symbolically takes this ring and hands it to Mordecai. And when we take all of this in, we, we realize that the Persian Empire now has a, a Jewish queen and a Jewish prime minister. I'm going to say that again. We now find that the Persian Empire, the greatest empire on the globe at this point, which our text tells us extends from India to Ethiopia, now has a Jewish prime minister and a Jewish queen. Friends, behold the sovereign hand of God. As we've been striking this theme all throughout the text, God's providence is always working. His purpose will stand. No, no matter what's ahead in 2024, and I'm not trying to scare or be alarmist, but we just don't know what's ahead of us. Well, actually we do. We know that God's on His throne. And we know that His providence is working all things for the greater good of His people and for His glory. And just as an aside, friends, what comfort that gives to us. What, regardless of what happens in the world economically, wars and rumors of wars and famines and sicknesses and overthrows and anything else we could think of in a, an alarmist sense or a sense of weight. One thing that we are comforted by is that the zeal of the Lord is accomplishing His purposes and has been from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, the first seeds of the gospel as God gives the promise of a redeemer, of a Messiah, Satan has been attempting to wipe out the promise of the Messiah coming. Satan has been working overtime to prevent everything he can from God's purposes and his plan from being accomplished. And at every point throughout all of history, Satan is a spiritual being. Satan was created, but he will live forever. Satan doesn't have a body like we have, and so he's never ending. He doesn't need to sleep like we need to sleep. His minions, the demons, the angelic realm, the spirit realm doesn't need nourishment like we need nourishment He's tirelessly seeking to overthrow God's purposes. And you would think at some point he would realize that he's insane. You know the definition of insanity, don't you? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different uh, result. You would think Satan would come to the realization that God is ahead of him every step of the way. That he is crushed. That he is the defeated foe that he is. Here we see such an example that in the Persian Empire, God has moved His people, is moving His people from annihilation to important positions. God is working and moving and placing His people at all times where they will most bring Him the glory and bring about His purposes. What we find here at the beginning is the great reversal. But even with this good news, there's still alarm drenching from the text here. We see this in Esther's action. We have two of our points tonight are simply the request. We have the first request here in verse 3. Notice what Esther does, what she says. The request, now Esther spoke again to the king. She fell down at his feet and she implored him. Notice here, this is different. This is a different Esther than the previous times she has come to the king. And she implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Here, Esther throws herself at the king's feet and again puts herself at his mercy. This is not becoming of the queen. If the king 
does not extend his scepter, she could lose her life yet again. But we see that she's completely overtaken with emotion. Esther has a burden. She has a burden for her people, and she knows that even though the mastermind of the annihilation plan, the, the plan to wipe out the Jews, is dead, his plan is still the law, the decree of the land. It stands. Esther here has humility. She has no pride. She's not basking in the glow of victory. Before, we saw her as very shrewd, calculated. While others were playing, uh, while others were playing checkers, she was playing chess. But here we find Esther, a, a different Esther. She's, she's overcome with emotion. She can't hold it back anymore, and she realizes and fully is comprehending the gravity of the situation, and she knows now is the time to act. She implores the king. She falls at his feet. In verse 4, we see number 3, the response of the king. And the king held out. This is a moment of tension. It could go either way. He could refuse her advances. He could refuse her imploring. He could refuse her request, and he could have her killed. He could be tired of this whole thing. He could be tired of the mystery. He could be tired of all the surprises. This is a dumb king, as we've established again and again. He's a fleshly king. All he thinks about is his own comfort. All he thinks about is his own uh, pertinent agenda. But what is his response? Verse 4, the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther, which means that she has permission to proceed. So Esther arose, and she stood before the king. Here Esther comes and presents her concern. The law still stands and is set to be carried out, in fact, in short order. The decree has already gone out and written out and is circulated all throughout the empire, as we mentioned before, from India to, to Ethiopia. Now, while Esther might be free as the queen, her life still hangs in the balance. Mordecai's life still hangs in the balance. All of the Jews' lives still stand under the condemnation of the decree that has gone out. On the appointed day, at the appointed time, they will be killed. If a eunuch in the palace who is anti-Semitic can't stand the Jews, knowing that Esther is a Jew, knowing that Mordecai is a Jew, in a very real sense, some servant who has an agenda, someone who is loyal and faithful to Haman, even though Haman's now off the scene, someone who has spite and wickedness and evil in their hearts, could technically assassinate Mordecai, assassinate Esther, and still be in compliance to the law, as well as all the other Jews. So the law of the Medes and the Persian still stands. This law cannot be revoked. So in this moment, she cannot enjoy the taste of victory. She cannot enjoy the winter palace there at Shushan and Susa. Her heart, we find, is burdened for her people. She is constrained. She has taken ownership. She is standing in the gap for her people. And unless something can be done, they all stand condemned before the law and will perish. In verses 5 and 6, we see she makes her second request. So Esther, the text says, arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king... And if I have found favor in his sight, notice how she is pouring it on. You know, husbands know what this is like sometimes, right? The wife wants something, and she wants permission to buy it, and uh, she's pouring it on. 
Here Esther is pouring it on. Now, some of you are looking at me funny, but it's true. This all happens in different ways. Sweet talking your husband or your wife when you, when you really have something you want to get it done. But notice how she says it. If, if, if it so pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right to the king, and if I am pleasing, this is four times saying the same thing in different ways. And if I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the son of the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how, verse 6, for how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my own countrymen? Here's a beautiful picture of Esther interceding as a savior in a sense for her people. And I'm not trying to make a typology reference to Esther as a true and better Jesus. I'm not saying that, not like that. But she's standing in the gap for her people. And here we have this echoes of Paul in Romans chapter 9, where Paul is vexed. Notice Esther's not saying anything about my life hangs in the balance here. First and foremost, her concern is for her countrymen, for her people. Notice there in verse 6, my people, uh, my countrymen, how can I endure this? How can I see this? Here Esther has gone from the silent queen hiding her ethnicity at the beginning of Esther to coming out in full display, owning her ethnicity, owning who she is, how God has made her in His sight, owning her people and not ashamed of this connection. And again, she's putting her life on the line for her people. Again, as I mentioned, this echoes Paul. We're not going to turn there, but in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, where Paul has a heart that is burdened for the lostness of his people. The lostness that they have in their sin, as they stand condemned under the law. He knows they need to understand grace. They need to understand conversion. They need to understand salvation, biblical salvation. So he's been making this argument through the book of Romans that it's not by works, it's by faith. Not to him who works, but to him who believes. And he comes to Romans chapter 9 and he says, oh, that I could save my people in a sense. Oh, if I could be perished, if I would be damned to hell so that my people may live. Paul speaks with great vocabulary and emotion, and he cries out to God, all of it revealing his heart and his love for the salvation of his people. At least that's the similarity that the Lord brought to my mind. This is echoes, I believe, of Paul in that sense in Romans chapter 9. Fifthly, notice the recommendation by the king we see there in verses 7 and 8. Now, the king and his it's interesting, his, heart, his wife is emotional. She's, she's crying, she's imploring, she's pouring out her heart. She's visibly moved. She's begging for the life of her people. And then notice in contrast kind of the response of this lame duck king. Notice what he says. He says, Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Well, indeed, I've given Esther the house of Haman. Like, aren't you satisfied with a house? No, actually, we're not. That, that doesn't help anything. That's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. But... Continue on. I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. And so, like, aren't you happy? Aren't you pacified? But here's the good news. Even bumbling kings can be led of the Lord to grant salvation and to grant wisdom. Notice what he says. How about you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews? As you please, in the king's name. And seal it with the king's signet ring, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Yeah, we know that, King Xerxes, because the last time you did that, this is why the problem, we're, we're in the problem that we're now in. Thank you for the monologue. Thank you for the lecture. Thank you for the lesson. 
But we will take that signet ring, and we will do as you say. This is the hand of the Lord working. I hope you're tracking. Like, do you understand what we're saying? The last time he did this, this is why we're in the mess that we're in. He simply handed everything over to Haman, and Haman decided to carry out his own agenda, his own initiatives. It's ultimately why we have this problem that we have. But the very means which presented the first problem is the means of salvation to get out of the problem. Power that was taken from the Jewish people is now handed back to the Jewish people. The law that stands, the decree that stands, that cannot, will not be revoked, is superseded, as we'll see, by a new law. Notice with me, number six, the requisition, the new regulation that is given in verses 9 through 14. First off, notice the request for the scribes in verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script. This is an organized deal to every people in their own language and to every Jews in their own script and language. These guys know what they're doing. They do this. Every time a law, a decree goes out, they get together. There's a checklist. There's a flow chart. This is the pattern. This is the way. We know what to do, guys. Boys, come on over. Let's get the scribes, sharpen your pencils, break out the paper, and let's start writing. They begin to ensure that this new decree that Mordecai is supervising and overseeing that will save the people is being written in every language tongue for every person under the reign of the Persian Empire. And what is it that is written? Well, notice the right to defend there in verses 11 and 12. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So here in this new law that stands, he gives the right of the Jews to be able to defend themselves. The old law is superseded by a new law. The people have a right, the Jews have a right to fight back. They have a right to defend their lives, their families, and their, their well-being. Now notice in verses 10 through 14, the rush to deliver this good news, this new law. In fact, we find in our own country, as I think we mentioned before in the first or second sermon of the series, that our own Pony Express here in America that we used to have of taking mail from the East Coast to the West Coast that only experienced, at least according to what they say, only one failed delivery through, I think, a murder of one of the, the men, switching up horses and ponies and running and evading Indians and running in, uh, robbers and all the storms and wild animals, all the variables that could, could happen. The Pony Express was so organized and so fine-tuned, but it was rooted off or based off of, templated off of, the first Pony Express, which was the Persian Pony Express. And we see that described here in the rush to deliver the new law. Notice it tells us that it's, it was sealed, verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Xerxes, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent the letters by couriers on horseback, riding on the royal horses, notice, that were bred from swift steeds. These horses were designed and bred for this very purpose. Verse 13, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people 
so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Verse 14, And so the couriers who rode on the royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Shushan, the, the citadel. Our last point this evening is number seven, the rejoicing that we find in verse 15. And notice this beautiful response of the people, the Jews. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, now with his authority, in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Proverbs says in a number of verses, in a myriad of ways, the people rejoice when the righteous rule. This is a day of, of honor. This is a day of rejoicing. This is a day where a righteous man, a good man, a man with judgment is placed into a position of rightful authority. He is now the prime minister of the kingdom. Verse 17, and in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, notice here, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. More about that next time. Well, then many of the people of the land, this is so unique as the way this chapter closes, then many of the people of the land became Jews because a fear of the Jews fell upon them. Many of these evidently became proselytes of the Jewish faith and tradition. They're just making sure that they are not on the wrong side when this day comes, that they are, um, they are under safety, they are under the banner of safety. But we conclude Esther chapter 8 with the theme of rejoicing. And it is so appropriate because much of the chapter has held tension, lives hanging in the balance, stress and anxiety. And so it is wonderful and fitting to close Esther chapter 8 with a theme of rejoicing. I want us to ponder a couple of points before we conclude the message here this evening. First of all, I want us to consider just for a moment that as we look at Esther chapter 8, it's a reminder to us to behold the power of God and His ability to reverse the irreversible or seemingly irreversible. Now, there's many examples that we could give here, but just quite frankly, as we look at this situation, this was an impossible situation. And many of you have found yourself in impossible, irreversible, by human standards, situations. So we look throughout the Old Testament time and time again, we find God's people in an irreversible situation. Irreversible unless God comes through and does something. Here we see such a text where God delights in displaying His hidden arm of power and providence, superintending for His people, and reminding all of us that the purpose of the Lord will stand. And it will always stand. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness of it, and all that live and dwell within. Uh, the earth belongs to Him. Everything within it. Behold the power of God to reverse the seemingly impossible. To reverse the irreversible. Not to over-personalize this. I don't know what's on your prayer list. I have no doubt that you have one. And I have no doubt that on your prayer list, there are impossible situations that you are praying about. We're not Jews, or most of us are not here this, morning, this evening, and we're not in this text. We're not trying to insert ourselves in the text, but there's a principle of God working, and that God is our God. And one thing we need to be reminded of is our God, um, with Him all things are possible. That's a theme, isn't it? You see that throughout the Scriptures. With men, 
the angel said. Others say at different times. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I just want to remind you, as you pray this week, as you spend time on your knees in prayer, as you intercede for those that you love, as you think about impossible situations, scenarios that are just difficult, burdens, maybe financial, maybe emotional, maybe relational, could be any number of things. You know what they are because they're your burdens. Um, seemingly, as you look at them, as you meditate and think about them, it's just crushing. The impossibility of the situation is crushing. crushing. Friend, I just want to encourage you, don't forget that all things are possible with God. Continue to be faithful in the place of prayer. Commit your burden to Him. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Let's not forget that. So we look at this chapter and really the whole book, even though God is not explicitly mentioned, we've said that many times, Esther chapter 8 particularly is just an amazing chapter because there's gospel echoes all throughout it. We see echoes of the gospel like as when Jesus was speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he begins to walk them through the Old Testament. He reminds them that the scriptures testify of him. If we look at Esther chapter 8, we're reminded that every story, every line, many of the lines here whispers his work and his name. We're reminded of the power of the gospel to overrule the power of sin. And we see this in the first law that was sent out and now the new law, the new decree that is put into place. We're reminded that there are two decrees or two laws of the land that are given in the book of Esther. The first one was a decree of death. The second one here in Esther chapter 8 is a decree of life. And it points to, this is where the gospel echo is, it points to the law, the law of God. We all stand guilty before the law of God. In the sense of our sin, we are condemned before the law. There is impending judgment and doom. You can say it like this, under the law of God, we are living under a death sentence in our unregenerate state. All men stand condemned before the law of God. That is why Jesus says to the most moral man who's ever lived, maybe that's, excuse me, that's quite an overstatement, um, and preachers are apt to overstatements. I'm going to walk that back. A very moral man, by the appearance of the flesh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus had all the boxes checked. Nicodemus had everything that you would expect from a man who could earn his way to heaven. And yet Jesus tells him in John chapter 3, verse 7, Nicodemus, even you must be born again. And the reason you must be born again is Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Nicodemus, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The first decree that's given, in a sense, echoes the law of God. Not explicitly, but in the results of it. There's a gospel echo that's there as it reminds us that before the law, in our sin, in our trespasses and sins, we stand condemned. And here's another facet. The law will not, cannot be overturned. The law in the book of Esther is simply the law of the Medes and the Persians. But the law of God stands forever. God will not overturn his decree. It stands and is irrevocable. But in the book of Esther, particularly here in chapter, chapter 8, we are introduced to the new law that is given. The law that overrules, and not overrules, but the law that is presented and stands and gives life and, and, and is in place. God has also given us another decree, and that decree is if we look to Christ, if we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. 
The first law reveals to us our death and our sin and our trespasses and tells us if we die in that state, we will perish for all eternity. The second law, the law of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, points us to life. If you're taking notes, Numbers chapter 21, verses 3 through 7 is a great cross-reference here. And it's a reminder that when the children of Israel murmured against God, which was one of their chronic sins, their default besetting sins, when they complained against the Lord, in this particular instance, He sent fiery serpents among them. As the serpents and the snakes begin to bite the Israelites, many of the Israelites begin to die from the poisonous venom. When that took place, God did not say before His people, well, I'm going to change my mind about that. Uh, in a sense, I repent of my punishment that I give to you. Not at all. He had declared a decree of death. He had declared a sentence of judgment upon his people. But what he did do was provide a way of life. What he did do was provide a way of salvation. He raised up and established a pole and put a bronze serpent on the pole, and he introduced a new decree, a decree of life. And the mantra of that decree, the command of that decree, was to look and to live. And it wasn't about the bronze serpent. It was about what the bronze serpent represented. If they would look to the pole that represented salvation, the sting of death would be overruled. They would be saved. Life would be given. So there's echoes of the two decrees that were given. The first decree that gives the decree of death. And then the second decree that we saw in Esther chapter 8, which is the decree of life. A third and final application point I'd like us to consider as we marinate here in the text is this. In the same way that there was a plan quickly established to take the good news of the new decree to the uttermost parts of the earth, there was an urgency to it. We as the church are under the decree. We are under the commission. We are under the command to take the good news of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. We see that the decree of life demanded by implication that the word spread as fast as possible. And friends, I just want to remind us as the church here this evening, this is what the gospel necessitates from us. This is what missions demands of us. That it is incumbent upon us that the gospel is the announcement that the decree of death is overruled, that missions and evangelism as we are faithful to communicate the gospel message we're to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there's a sense of urgency to this. There's a sense of life and death hanging in the balance. And I'll just say this, and I don't think we can hit this too much. Our theology, our right theology, or we wouldn't hold to it, does not negate our obedience to the urgency of the gospel. Our understanding of who God is and His sovereign purposes from beginning to end does not slow our step or stop our tongue from preaching and teaching the good news of the gospel to every creature under heaven. There must be a sense of urgency. And if Grace Church ever loses its sense of urgency and obedience to the Lord's command, you can just go ahead and write death on the door of the church. Just go ahead and write Ichabod on the door of the church. If we ever lose that sense of urgency to share the gospel to our neighbors, to those in our life, or support the work of missions, and we ourselves going and supporting those who go. Very quickly, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just a reminder to us, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
And you, he said to his disciples, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end or uttermost parts of the earth. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I don't know of a better example of a text that points to the fact of divine sovereignty in the personal work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, His divine sovereignty empowers us to go. It doesn't negate us from going or excuse us from going. In fact, Jesus announces to His disciples, because I'm sovereign, go. So to the people who would say, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then why share the gospel? Because Jesus says so. Jesus commands us to do so. We follow in obedience to the Lord's command. And divine sovereignty doesn't negate our obedience. Divine sovereignty guarantees success in our evangelism and our missions. Divine sovereignty and the sovereignty of God and His empowering Holy Spirit guarantees that our work will not be wasted ever. What a, what a comfort that is. So friends, share the good news of the decree of the gospel. So he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So because of this, verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And again, because I'm sovereign, remember this, lo, I'm with you always. You're never alone. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, friends, what a beautiful way to end our study of Esther chapter 8 as we think about the gospel. And before I close, I want to ask you, have you believed this gospel? Have you believed the good news of the gospel of Christ that, that you are a sinner, that you stand condemned under the law of God, that you were born this way, you were born not seeking Him, you were born lost in your trespasses and sins, you were born loving your sin, loving yourself, hating God? This is the way of all men. Romans 3, no man loves God, no man seeks after God, no one desires God. This is because we are depraved, we are lost, we are blind in our trespasses and sins. But God sent His Son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the same way that bronze serpent in the wilderness was lifted high so that all who looked upon it could believe and live, all those who look upon the Lord Jesus Christ with faith, turning from their sins, resting in His finished work, believing in the fact that He is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, that He came to live the perfect life that God requires, that we are supposed to live, but we, it's incapable for us to live. And He lived it and did it for us. He died upon the cross for our sins. He was buried, placed into the grave, and He rose literally three days later. And He was manifested before His people, His disciples, among many witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And then He ascended the doctrine of the ascension to the Father in heaven, and He reigns even now on high. And as we observe this table, it's a remembrance that just as He came the first time, He is coming again. We reflect upon His finished work and His sacrifice. But I can't think of a better way to come to faith in Christ than on a Sunday night, if you're lost, reflecting and meditating on the person and work of Christ. Before we observe the table of the Lord, I want to ask you, do you know Jesus? Is He your Lord and your Savior? Not your mom's Savior, not your dad's Savior. Is He your Lord? Is He your Savior? And if He's not, call upon Him at this very moment. Trust in Him. You must be born again, or otherwise you cannot enter 
the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again or you stand under the righteous condemnation of God. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the day that you saved us from our sins. Father, I thank you for the day you saved me. Thank you for saving me as a lost sinner from my sins. Father, thank you for giving me a new heart. You took out the hardened heart of sin of stone and you gave me a heart of flesh. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion. The Spirit who leads us into the truth, who reproves and convicts and rebukes and shows us our sin and our need. Father, thank you for everything that we have in Christ, the riches that we have in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have for all eternity to dwell in fellowship with you. Every joy that we have in this life, every good thing that is a gift from you, is all designed to simply point us to the glories of your person and work, all that you are, and all that we will have with you in Christ for all eternity. Father, we pray as we reflect around the table that you would strengthen our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would draw us in humility and gratitude and thankfulness as we remember our humble Lord and Savior who humbled himself, Philippians 2, who humbled himself and was obedient to the cross and the death of the cross. It's because of this that God is highly exalted him. We thank you for the finished work of Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here this evening who is lost, they don't know you, but your spirit's at work in their hearts, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. We're confident, Lord, that you are still saving the lost. We stand under your command to take the gospel to every creature under heaven, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and so, Father, we pray that at grace that we would see not only salvations through the preaching of the gospel and the word right here through our ministries, right here in the preaching and teaching ministry of the church and as the gospel goes forth, but we pray that we'd also see fruit that abounds to the account of grace for the glory of God from the uttermost parts of the earth. We think of pastors in Kenya who are being trained under sound doctrine, the gospel being preached, all because one of our Christmas boxes went out and was taken to them. Lord, we have no idea what, what all that you're doing, but we just pray that you would help us to never stop being faithful to the task that you've given to us. As we come before your table, would you minister grace to everyone here this evening? Would you save the lost? Would you strengthen the feeble? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.